Podcast, you tape peeling, binaural microphone recording screedlers. This is Stefan Lee, the podcast studio manager. It feels like it's been a minute, yes? Well, who fucking cares? You do. And that's why you're here today. Thank you. On this week's episode, we've got Dina Winter, whom you may also know by the name May Waver. Let's turn it over to your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney. I'm Ira Glass. Welcome to Jackass. It's episode 92 of the Humor in the Abject podcast. I'm your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney. Who else is ready to make this a December to remember? I know I am. We've got so many great interviews lined up for you this month that I can barely stand it. If you're going to head home for the holidays and see family, uh, I pray that these will, you know, I don't know, provide you solace after you drink too much wine and try to convince your family that George W. Bush was demonstrably a worse president than Donald Trump. And if you're feeling frisky, I mean, why not bring up Obama drone bombing weddings in Yemen? That'll put your mom in her place. Anyways, this week I'm pleased to have had the opportunity to speak with Dina Winter, whom you may know from her online artist persona, May Waver. Dean is a co-founder of the CyberTweet Collective, and she's shown her work uh, a ton of places like MassArt, Lemonade Gallery in the UK, ATM here in Austin, Portland State University, and lots of other places. She's well-known for her experimentations with ASMR, immersive installations, and more recently, her set design for the stage and the big screen, including a new film called American Tender, which we talk a little bit about in the interview. 
If you like humor in the abject, support us on Patreon for just $3 a month to get all kinds of fun, exclusive perks, like the chance to win your very own custom sound collage by yours truly. You'll hear the one I made for November's winner, longtime Screedler Jacob Witz, about halfway through this week's episode. Big shout out to Jacob. I hope Wisconsin is treating you well, buddy. That's enough for me. It's go time, Screedlers. Here's my conversation with Dina Winter. The CIA killed Bradley Noel. Dina Winter, welcome to Humor and the Abject. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Sean. I'm happy to be here. It's great to have you. What is the, what's the temperature like in the Twin Cities? Now that I'm a Texan, I like to ask people who live in cold places what the temperature is. Yeah, it's like 20 degrees out and snowing right now. Um, but that's actually pretty balmy and like pleasant for the Twin Cities. It can huh. get way, yeah. way, way worse. So I bet I'm chilling now. You recently, you paid a visit to my former home of New York City. Is that correct? Yes. I was there was for Thanksgiving. Was that a business trip? Oh, Thanksgiving. Yeah. I was there for the week, so it was kind of like to visit friends who live there and then to have Thanksgiving dinner. So yeah, pleasure, friendship, food, purposes. Conviviality. Yes. yes. So you live and as you just mentioned, in the Twin Cities. You live and work in St. Paul, Minnesota. Is yeah. that where you grew up? Um, I grew up in Minneapolis, but they're okay. like sister cities. So for your listeners who can't be bothered with Midwest geography, it's basically Minneapolis is on the west side of the Mississippi River and St. Paul is on the east and they kind of like straddle it. Do they have kind of like a healthy rivalry yes. between them at all? Yes, I would yes. say so. Okay. <laughs> I work in Minneapolis, so I like... I'm crossing back and forth every single day. Um, I make the joke that I'm bi-coastal, which is like not funny, but... Um. Dude, <laughs> I love bi-coastal Midwest jokes. I like to think about the, the east and the west coast of the state of Michigan, yeah. of, of Lake Michigan and Lake Huron, I think is the other one. I'm going to kill myself if I can't remember which of those it is, but... That would be kind of off-brand for you to not know. I'm Now I'm panicking because I said it out loud and I'm terrified that I'm getting the lakes wrong, but I'm going to move on. Y you can edit um, that. <laughs> Okay, so you're originally from there. How did you decide, um, I guess, after school to establish your creative practice there instead of um, New York, Los Angeles, or I guess the obvious Midwest choice would be Chicago? Um, right. Is it really good cost of living to quality of life or family? What what brought you back to the Minneapolis-St. Paul area? I would say I moved back out of convenience and then have stayed because it's ended up working really well for my personal life and my creative practice. Yeah. The cost of living is a lot lower than those bigger cities, um, but there's still a lot of like culture and like green space and just like general good quality of life, I would say. That's a good, honest and practical answer. I think people are quick to kind of outline a bunch of reasons why they went this place or that and we're sort of conditioned to not say because I feel comfortable in a particular place or because it works for me. Yeah. As if that's some kind of like, mm -hmm. uh, I don't know what kind of attitude, but it's almost like beaten out of us or something. Yeah. But if you're like, no, I want to live here because it's nice. Yeah. I don't <laughs> I, like, I don't feel like I need to justify it. I, it's just made sense for me these past few years. I wasn't asking you to justify <laughs> I it. I do also um, want to live other places at some point. And I'm sort of trusting that when the time is right, that will happen. And... Yeah, maybe that would be like New York or L.A. or living abroad somewhere for a while. I really like Canada. <laughs> yeah, Canada's so, fun. Yeah, I don't know. I, it's like, it's all temporary. How would you describe the um, contemporary art community in the Twin Cities? Just from a distance, and I know I'm looking through like a mediated lens because I'm seeing it on social media, but it feels pretty robust from the Walker Art Center. And then there's all these artist-run projects like... Sadie Halley projects, Midway Hair and Nails, all of these kinds of things like that. What's it? What's the vibe? The vibe is, um, yeah, I would say the Walker and Mia, the Minneapolis Institute of Arts, are like the two main big institutions. And then there's a lot of like, yeah, smaller artist run spaces and kind of like experimental galleries in people's garages. I feel like the scene here is fragmented into these little friend groups and smaller communities i don't feel like there's like a larger sure, sense of yeah. like ah the scene like who's who um people just kind of do their own little things that's kind of fun though definitely really different from a place like new york 
But to be honest, I don't feel super intimately involved. Like I have my sort of peers and friends who are like doing creative things, but I've never felt super like, oh, I'm a part of this. (laughs) I think it feels, it feels exactly, it felt exactly like that to me in New York though, too. There are all these kind of like little factions and groups and things. And there's perhaps a larger veneer of like, oh, there's this whole thing going on, but it it didn't it, it felt like just a maybe kind of like on steroids version of yeah uh what you're describing which is also kind of how i felt like around like 2009 2010 like portland oregon was a lot mm-hmm. like that there were a lot of experimental spaces and things and people were in kind of these little pockets and a couple institutions but it was sort of spread out in a not just a geographical way but also in just kind of like a communicative way that people were just sort of doing their things but that can be that can be sort of refreshing i guess when people aren't fighting tooth and nail for some kind of superficial end goal or something and just doing things to be weird or doing things because they want to is pretty fun i have found that the arts scenes communities here are not particularly competitive feeling to me maybe that's just my perception but i don't feel like that i'm like fighting with people to be known or to be seen here sure but also that's like my own disposition of like not really wanting to have to do that which is maybe part of having stayed here for the past couple of years like while i'm sort of figuring things out i'm constantly just figuring things out i don't think that'll ever end no there's something to be said i mean on the one hand it's very terrifying because it feels very precarious and you don't know what your future is like and all these things like that but then there's you know i i guess the the flip side of that that's kind of nice is it is it's kind of exciting not to be like well i have this uh mortgage and this commitment to this uh job or something like that that i will never leave and never do anything else and i can't imagine myself being someplace else so it is a double-edged sword of sorts yeah (laughs) i first came across your work probably like four or five years ago i think probably Mm -hmm. on twitter or instagram or facebook somewhere like that um and at the time i would say that you were kind of lumped in probably unfairly with what people were calling in online circles like selfie feminism and Mm -hmm. part of that might have to do with the conversations around that digital exhibition um body anxiety that jennifer chan and leah schrager curated that included your work among lots of different people um and i guess with the gift of hindsight and i've asked a couple other people who've been on the podcast who kind of got maybe put into that box uh mm-hmm. what feels like eons ago now um which isn't that long ago but do you have in hindsight kind of any any perspective on on what that what that whole moment was like and how you felt in response to it having your work sort of aligned with with those not politics but i guess that kind of like yeah. that social charge that people were applying to selfie feminism i will say it really does feel like a different lifetime sort of Uh um and in a way it is because i feel like at that time my sort of alter ego online persona as may waver had like very much a life of her own and i think i'm i'm in a really different place now and the fact that that moniker still sort of hangs around with me is more of just like a vestige of that experiment i guess in like art and identity and whatever. And not to say that that wasn't me making the work, but that sort of pseudonym was born out of this feeling of like grappling with my selfhood, my body, this sort of sense of like duality of living in a small town in Wisconsin and then having this sort of like expansive life of its own online and sort of those like contradictions just between who you are in different places and different spaces and like your private and public selves in that tension yeah i i mean i i think i mentioned this to you over email but i didn't i feel silly but i i had no idea that that was a pseudonym until very very recently yeah and i was just like what a serendipitous name for this artist who's making this kind of like tender work to be named may waver it was totally intentional <laughs> like, i well, mean clearly that's a fake name yeah, well <laughs> a lot of people probably still this could be the first time they are hearing that or like you know i never made an attempt to like correct people who were like calling me that because that was just sort of i don't know it's been interesting because it started as this sort of like experiment where i was basically like it'd be cool to make art kind of like semi-anonymously online and almost in the sort of like internet troll girl kind of thing just like 
like befriending other artists online and like experimenting with social media as like an art medium, um, which felt like a new idea at the time, or at least to me, that felt like a very new idea, not something that I had really like seen that much before beyond what people kind of around me in those circles were doing. Yeah, yeah. The name may waver. I was thinking of like, oh, something that may waver, like it might change. There's sort of like a sense of uncertainty or flux in that and and I think it really did grow out of contradictions or uncertainty about all kinds of things. So you were in school in Wisconsin, were you because you were studying um you were studying art, but you were also studying like public health, right? Yes. Did the stuff that you were doing online at the time as this kind of persona of May Waver, was that work that you were also kind of sharing with people in your peer circles? Or was there like no. a firm <laughs> distinction between well, this is me in Wisconsin, and then online, I'm this entire other kind of person circulating around. It was more the latter. Really? I was an art major <laughs> and a health and society major, as it was called. Health and society, okay. Um, which is just like a holistic, like public health kind of thing. But my school didn't offer any like very robust, like digital art, any type of classes like that. It was like woodworking and like, um, oil painting and stuff. So the all the work that I was making online as kind of like net art was completely separate from what I was... Well, not separate. It was connected to what I was doing in school, but I wasn't really sharing it with my classmates or like bringing it into that space very much. Eventually I did and then faced a lot of like backlash and criticism on my campus of people being like, who is this girl? She's so fake. What? Yeah, I don't know. It was just like... <laughs> I'm sorry. For I was that. like, that of course, sound, like, yeah, obviously. it doesn't sound like it was funny at the time. No, but it's just to me, it seems like such a, I guess maybe just from being embedded in like contemporary art and stuff to me, it's just like, well, yeah, of course I had like a fake yeah. online art. And my, what do you mean? <laughs> yeah. And my comparison too was like, musicians do that all the time and it's completely Constantly. normal. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and people have their stage persona who like, you know, whatever, like, pop singer is is like a completely different person on the stage than in their like sure or to expect that a novelist is like necessarily speaking um autobiographically yeah. in every character that they're writing right. for or something like that it is kind of a funny i guess uh double standard that gets mm -hmm. applied to people's art maybe because we assume that there's some kind of moral or ethical compass that artists follow and thereby everything that they produce ought to be sort of a presentation or a communication of their politics publicly mm -hmm. as opposed to playing around or experimenting or seeing what happens right. without feeling like oh well they're pulling the wool over my eyes because they used a different name yeah it's kind of like that seems, yeah, that seems a little bit unfair that artists have to kind of navigate that. I think it was just that in early on in like 2014, um, it felt like I'm just like having fun and experimenting and like, this is a new medium for me and I'm not really sharing this with like my professors or my classmates. This is like a world unto itself that I'm just like creating and a part of. Yeah. And it's in conversation with a new audience of people right. that are encountering it that way who aren't attaching all the right. significance of your personal life to it. But then I think what was interesting and sort of like painful at the time, but I think something that ultimately was good and that I've grown from is like the fact that what really did feel like just play like, it really felt like just play and kind of putting it mm -hmm. out there publicly and being kind of vulnerable, being like, I'm I'm exploring these things that I feel shameful about. I'm exploring these things that I feel kind of like, I don't know, whatever, all kinds of ways about. Um, and then to have that pretty rapidly be put in the context of like New York art world, like body anxiety being written up by Joanna Fateman in art forum. I, it was super surreal. And I, I think like a really exciting time for me because I was like, wow, like all the stuff that I'm thinking about really deeply is being validated in a certain way. Or yeah, like yeah. some people are taking it as serious and important and worthy of discussion. Yeah, I think they were. I mean, I remember that maybe it was 2014 or 2015, like uh, Andrew McGinty curated a couple yeah. screenings that you and I were in together. Yeah, I totally. Remember. And that I was think like, at Nighthawk. Yeah, it, yeah, was, it like was cool. A, yeah. That was exciting. <laughs> I think it's that's a funny thing to kind of reflect on and think about 
um i mean in 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 life terms that's a really short time ago but in this kind of like in the way that there's an acceleration in terms of art practice with distribution online it's it's really quite a lifetime ago in some senses even though it's only a few years but yeah. something that you touched on about this kind of vulnerability was something that I did want to ask you about because there's something that's central to a lot of the work that you've put out and that's this kind of challenge to an audience to rethink their perspectives of uh, tenderness especially in the age or the context of social media um, to rethink it from a perspective of that that it's somehow weak or that it's inherently weak to be open or or soft um and there's you know an id article that's from quite a few years ago where you sort of um i'll paraphrase here but you sort of hint at that you know culture does reward toxic masculinity and this ability to be cold aggressive and machine-like um but that what you're advocating for is is tenderness or softness as this legitimate and powerful alternative to feeling really hard all the time mm -hmm. and when that article came out i remember it was probably 2015 or something i remember tweeting it out because i read it and i was like hey this this like resonated with me and i reread it before this um uh talk with you today and it, and it still had the same impact and it felt uh I don't know how to put this without it sounding. I mean, it's and I guess that's me being afraid of sounding tender or cheesy, but it it felt nice to have like a creative peer basically saying like, hey, it's OK to be tender online and offline. I'm really glad that resonated with you. And I think it's like funny. I sort of cringe at some of the that language hearing it now because I feel like. Some the of those words stuff I have said become... on the podcast last week. So yeah, yeah, don't yeah. Worry. Like <laughs> it, it's like particular. There's like certain words like tenderness. I feel like I I like have a certain yeah buzzwordy clicheness, whatever you want to call it now. Where yeah. what I was trying to say then is still feels like that was coming from my honest truth. Um, but I I also like I'll feel uncomfortable sometimes when I realize that certain ideas like that and a lot of times when they sort of like cling to really specific words it becomes sort of rote and like the meaning of it is almost lost because it's like a weird like dogma for some people almost or sort of take i don't know really how to describe that but like yeah um, well all of those things do get kind of co-opted into they become meaningless in the same way that a term like community gets used and then it's no longer meaningful even though it is mm -hmm. the word to describe the thing mm -hmm. of course there's a maybe a a kind of perspective that thinking about tenderness or softness or something like that is somebody now is gonna automatically link that to kind of tropes of self-care or this kind of like yeah. uh or or to somehow assume that because someone is advocating for that that person is also advocating for just um like a privileged position where you can avoid conflict or something like yeah. that but i i think the the baseline sentiment of it though is is quite altruistic and is not of course it can be sullied with all these other things but i think the reason that i say that even you know almost four years later reading it again it's like regardless of what vocabulary or how that vocabulary has entered mainstream conversations about this or that i think that the crux of it is still something that's interesting to consider and and something to um i think to take to heart as an artist because it's really hard to not it's very hard not to posture with irony or or Absolutely. cynicism constantly you yeah know? and i feel like in thinking about trying to make a career or like a living out of being an artist is like a terrifying thing to do and i think that a lot of traditional notions of like success in that arena are sociopathic yeah. and i just <laughs> yeah i'm yeah, yeah. not really a hundred percent interested in becoming that way to achieve certain status or like of course yeah i would say there's like privilege in that too but it's also a thing where you can you could say too that it's that not desiring to necessarily have to achieve particular modes of success because you as and, and i'm using the royal you one has um 
one has made peace with the fact that like, yeah, I'm going to work a day job, but I also make this creative stuff. And so I'm, I'm just going to exist as a person in culture and I'll produce things. And sometimes other people will see those and think that they're important. But the end goal is not to somehow be able to instrumentalize that kind of creative production as a way to make a living. I mean, great if you can, mm-hmm. but that not being the singular goal in every decision along the way. Yeah. And I think that has been part of my maybe sort of moving away from as actively pursuing a quote unquote career as like strictly an artist who is like doing solo shows and like is trying to like end up with a museum retrospective and be like a certain type of like quote unquote fine artist or something. It's funny too, because what you make at least through my exposure, is are, are things that are, it would be, you'd have to find really novel ways to kind of commercialize aspects yeah. of them. <laughs> I mean, certainly certainly uh, gallerists and things like that are um, quite skilled at finding ways to commercialize those types of things. But yes. it's a funny thing to imagine having the desire to produce something and then being like, but I need to make sure that it's an addition that can be sold. Yes. That can get messy if you're kind of making all your decisions based on that. Yeah. If you also have a another plan that's like, but I can still pay my rent. Now, let's take a quick break to hear the custom sound collage for November's lottery winner, Jacob Witz. Jacob, if you're listening, we love you. If you'd like the chance to win your own sound collage, and to get all kinds of custom perks, head over to patreon.com slash humor and the abject and sign up for just $3 per month. Talk a little bit about what's going on in this room because I think there are some fascinating ramifications here for the future. When you introduce genetic material of research quality to a life form such as ours, which is possessed of a a sort of, I hesitate to use the word, atavism, but let us say a highly aggressive nature. For example, that fellow over near the, um, I believe that's a common bat of the order Choroptera, the only mammals I might add capable of flying. That's not a bill. I keep getting asked the question, how does one get a greaser nickname? How, you know, they're like, I get people asking me, oh, how can I come up with a a greaser nickname or what kind of nickname should I use? What should I call myself? I'm going to give you guys the cold hard truth about this, the way I know it to be and how it happened for me and pretty much everybody else I know. The thing is this, cats, you don't come up with a greaser nickname. A greaser nickname is given to you. Basically, by having sex. This new environment can produce a Cambrian explosion in new ways to live together. But this was just a thought experiment. Or was it? The ocean is already home to ships with thousands of residents. Famed oceanographer Robert Ballard, who discovered the Titanic, said at TED that the time to settle the oceans is now. So four years ago, I started the Seasteading Institute with venture capitalist Peter Thiel, who took a bet on our mission to open the oceans for human habitation and new societies. We've released hundreds of pages of research that I can't summarize in this brief time on areas like ocean engineering and international law, including a cost study showing that an ocean hotel 200 nautical miles off Los Angeles could cost the same as buildings in San Francisco. Sonic decided to end his early morning run the second a fat raindrop landed on his nose. The slightly exasperated hedgehog put on the brakes, pulling up dirt and grass as he dug his heels into the ground. It was a bummer that he had to cut his run short. The adrenaline pumping through his veins, the wind whipping across his face, the pure rush of the activity, was so ingrained in him that turning around was almost painful. Sure, running in the rain wouldn't kill him, but he needed traction if he didn't want to eat mud for breakfast. 
Also, being drenched by any type of water just wasn't high on his to-do list. And, okay, he should have expected this because he noticed the darkened clouds when he left his home about 10 minutes ago. He just thought that maybe luck would be on his side. Sonic turned around to face the way he came, and inwardly groaned when that one raindrop became hundreds. He drifted his emerald irises from the once bright, hilly landscape up towards the dreary sky above, sending it a weak glare. Luck definitely wasn't on his side today. Life can seem impossible. It's never easy when there's so much on the line. But you and I can make a difference. This song's called I Hate Chicago. about like um just in the way i use social media like should i be professionalizing this more should i be Mm. like using the like in the work that i'm more doing now related to set design and production design like am i willing to like hashtag set design my images Uh to get the like (laughs) movie producer people to see my like i don't know I think about that stuff all the time and it like probably really doesn't matter. It's all like grist for the mill, but I just I like, suppose, yeah. I don't know. My version of professionalizing my social media is if I'm looking for a job, my Twitter is private. Yeah. That's the, that that's the entire, that is the scope of how professional I am on social media. Yeah. Um, well, you just touched on it. So what are you doing with, uh, what are you doing with set design and things now? I mean, it seems like, I noticed that in the last probably more than several months, but that all of a sudden you started, you know, you were working with these different filmmakers, you're doing these kinds of things. And it, it kind of, it made sense to me because I thought, well, you've done all these kind of environment things and sound and and, in texture as a concept Mm -hmm. seems so important to what you're doing. What do you, what is, because I'm kind of a novice, um, like what is set design? I know it's not just making a room for a movie, but what what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, so um, so actually for years, I've been a set designer for this local theater camp for kids. Theater camp? Yes. Um, Dude, Which that has been awesome. like a, basically like a side hustle every summer. I just like make a bunch of sets. They do like four or five shows a summer. Um, uh-huh. So it's really rapid succession. You have like two weeks. I have like two weeks to design and build a whole I mean they're kind of small but like yeah basically like the entire stage environment so it's like flats that have like you know paint them to look like walls in a certain type of room and then we have a lot of furniture and we have a lot of like fake trees and stuff that kind of come into rotation depending on the show those are like simple sets but I've been doing that for a long time that sounds like a really fun job like job job to have as an artist it's really fun 
even though I haven't like painted that much on a sort of like quote unquote fine art level of like exhibiting on painting somewhere, I love painting. <laughs> so like scenic painting is really fun yeah. for me. Painting backdrops and things like that. Oh, I had a friend named Mike Jones who, not the rapper, but another guy <laughs> named Mike Jones. I wish you were I, friends I, with Mike I, Jones, yeah, the I rapper. Went to, I went to school with him and we used to play music together and he had a job at Portland Center Stage when we moved up to Oregon. Um, and he loved his job. He was like a printmaking major and he built crazy cool installations and sets and he absolutely loved it. And he was like, I literally just make sculptures all day. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, I make sculptures and installations. And he was like, and I'm uniquely like primed to do this with my degree. And yeah. it's a really cool and interesting day job. And he got paid well and it was fun. And I was always like secretly jealous because I was like trying to be a professor. And I was like, fuck, he's like in a union. <laughs> I, I kind of come from that like set design background in a kind okay, of like yeah. smaller scale theater context. And then just this year, I've been really like kind of going full speed ahead with trying to do production design for films. Okay, yeah. That's similar in that you're oftentimes creating like a built environment for the action to take place in. I honestly, I like it more, I think, than theater because it's so much more about the details. And you get to imagine everything framed differently, right? Because with a stage set, it has to be in the round 100% of the time. Yeah. And you probably have a lot more leeway with film to do interesting, strange little corners and stuff. Yeah. And there's just a lot of kind of like movie making magic sort of like tricks and schemes that you come up with to make things look a certain way. Do you get to yell, fix it, we'll fix it in post? Do you ever get to yell that? Kind of. Um, I feel like, yeah, I feel like that's a thing. I know often, from, like, I don't know. The, yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> definitely the director. Usually it's the director who's making that call of like, okay, um, not you're not stepping yeah. in and being like, oh, God, I think if I, they, I need to get the, the art as perfect as possible. And then if they feel like something needs to be changed in post, they will change it. They if they have make a that call. budget. Yeah, okay. So like the other thing too, is that um, it's been a real mix of like, the size of the productions that I've been working on. Yeah. So the feature that I was the production designer for last February, we shot that and it just premiered at the Twin Cities Film Fest in October. Um, and that, although it was a feature, it was like a super small crew. I got paid a day rate every day on set, but like it wasn't a lot of money. There wasn't there's no like, we'll fix it in post. It's kind of like, okay, we're mostly like what we get is what we get with this. Sure, yeah. Um, is that American Tender? That's yes, what that film is? I'm referring to American Tender. Which is just, I mean, I don't think that the title has anything to do with your work, <laughs> but it's kind of, I was, was like, sort of, of course, serendipitous. that's the feature. Yeah, yeah. that's really, well, and, it I, refer <laughs> and it's sort of the double, double entendre of like tenderness, but also tender like money legal tender yeah it all connects how did you get connected to that was it shot in the twin cities area the film yeah it was it was shot in the twin cities metro area the greater metropolitan um, kind of like on the edge so kind of like in the suburbs actually it's it's kind of like a uh -huh. this isn't the official log line for the film but i refer to it to other people as like a suburban millennial kind of like bonnie and clyde type story okay yeah romance heist sort of thing yeah i watched the trailer to it it looked cool it gave me a lot of anxiety though i got worried even though it didn't tell me what was going to happen but i was like i don't want to i don't want to rob someone yeah it's like pretty <laughs> it, it's pretty suspenseful in certain parts i think or like kind of intense were you at the premiere of it yeah i was it was cool I, was it kind of nuts to watch an audience kind of see what you had been working on? Definitely. And of course, like, I feel like when you have been involved in making the thing, the whole time you're just thinking about like, oh my God, like, what is this scene going to look like on the screen? And just like mm -hmm. picking up, I was like picking apart my own work the whole time. And like, of course, but yeah. also it was cool to hear the audience like laugh at the parts that were funny or yeah, like yeah. parts that I didn't expect to be funny. And then people laughed and it was like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> what a different experience. People had all kinds of reactions to things. Yeah, the audience response mechanism is so different than art. 
because yeah. at your opening, yeah. everyone mills about and sort of looks at something for a second and then moves on. And you never really have any kind of, yeah. you have no idea what they thought. <laughs> the, I kind of uh, don't like that. No one does. No yeah. one likes it. Nobody likes I, it. Yeah. It's... The one time actually I had like a really great experience with my, the solo show that I had at Lemonade Gallery in yeah, the UK. Yeah, in the UK, right? Yeah. yeah, that's in Windsor. So kind of like just outside London. That was actually really awesome. But also like that was kind of a screening because it was one room and I screened this video artwork that was kind of like it was a projection and it was part of an installation that was kind of like I hesitate to really use the word immersive because I don't really I don't know that's slippery but if it was like a, an experience um, yeah and a lot of people there had like never heard of me or my work before and so this was their introduction there was a lot, a lot of kind of just like really awesome genuinely curious questions and like some people had really emotional reactions which was cool but generally that's not my experience with like going to like gallery openings that's probably why i like doing performance stuff when you have just flat works on a wall or sculptures or something it's really really difficult to especially in that kind of thing right after you produce it all and then an opening happens and then you're just kind of sitting there the next week and you're like well what now i don't know yeah okay <laughs> now it sits there for six weeks or something <laughs> and then you have to store it when it's done yeah <laughs> so it's like... i luckily i i guess i do store my work but it's on a hard drive so it doesn't yeah 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 it's in the cloud yeah well and like when i started making yeah. kind of like internet based art video art stuff like that i my bedroom was my studio and sure everything was just on my computer or on my phone there's a i don't know yeah simplicity in that i guess i think there's something kind of fun too about the degradation of those things like the way that a sculpture kind of dematerializes over time or like metal oxidizes or this or that i've kind of gotten a kick out of like if i'm applying for something and i have to submit x amount of work so let's say through mm -hmm. slide room or something like that there are pieces that i made a few years ago that since then that laptop i've spilled coffee all over it it's been destroyed and the only way that i but i put the thing on youtube or something so yeah. then i'm like this kind of funny thing where in the same way that you look at a vhs recording and things look degraded and kind of like of their time i'm like pulling performance documentation from my own youtube yeah. page that i only uploaded at like 480p and then i'm downloading it and recropping it to put in a thing and it just yep. looks shitty but i'm kind of like i love that i don't know though. i mean that's where the work lived you know it went yeah. that's where people saw it was on this platform and that's fine like, wait more, okay wait more <laughs> i want to say more about where the work lived i have to go grab my charger Do for it. my um yeah laptop one second <laughs> been thinking a lot about where a lot of my old work lived and how those spaces have those platforms have changed so much just in the past five years or whatever and so often the stuff I was making was as much about the way it sort of traveled through social media I think yeah as the like jpeg itself or whatever and so in thinking about how to archive it it's real i've just like been having this thought more lately like how is that work going to be read in the future because it feels like any way that i present it now it's like completely stripped of its context yeah when i look at like old images and even like videos of mine that i was sort of like sharing on facebook or something among other artists and like weird facebook personalities in like a facebook group or something yeah that like felt like part of the context of the work totally yeah they're it, if not site specific they're site responsive right yeah yeah and so to kind of yank them to yank them out of that and then look at them later is sort of like a well it kind of was it was meant to be seen in a feed yeah right yeah yeah even stuff like the comments on videos <laughs> or on pictures i would think about that and maybe this was like me being sort of like pretentious about it or something. But like in my mind, I was really like, 
that's part of the work now and had that intention that part of this feels like relational or something in that like the reactions to it in real time online as I'm kind of like sharing things feel like they are part of the work and part of what the work is addressing in this sort of like symbiotic feedback loop. I don't think that's pretentious at all, though. I think that that's, I mean, that's built into, that's built into the platforms where the things are presented and received. And they're also, it, it comes down to the question of kind of like, I don't know if you got, I remember getting asked in school sometimes, like, where do you locate the art in this? If you made something that wasn't just yeah, like a sculpture? Definitely. I don't know. Yeah. And I think, I think like <laughs> related to that is just this underlying thing of throughout, I think all of the work I've ever made, there's kind of this yearning for like connection on a very intimate human level. Um, and then the tension that is created when you're trying to do that through these platforms and these structures yeah, that are yeah. largely corporate, surveilled, highly engineered spaces. And ones that kind of reward by default, like knee-jerk, nasty behavior. Mm-hmm. You know, like to put something up where you are like, I'm being open and vulnerable and this and that. Certainly there are spaces within those platforms where those things are received as such. But very often as they travel outside of that or anything else, um, you're putting something up that might very well just immediately be mocked or like somebody's going to say something shitty or somebody's going to say yeah. this or that. It's a And yeah, then there's really this other thing, thing where I feel like now... And I don't know if this was even, I don't know if I even felt that this was as much the case five years ago or whatever, but I think now there is also sort of more mass movement online toward like, like sharing your deepest thoughts in your Instagram caption on a selfie and the sort of like abundance of seeming like authenticity of mm -hmm. sharing yourself i do also feel kind of cynical for like thinking about this now too but that that like has been sort of subsumed in yet another way to it like garner yeah, yeah, yeah. garner like um followers and like capital and like no it makes sense i mean earlier when you were talking about reflecting on the language that you were using let's say in that id interview and then yeah. thinking now like oh gosh those terms on this where that way it's it it is it is uh it can be very troubling to think about anything that you're doing that um you believe as an artist or creative person has a degree of authenticity not for the sake of like hashtag authentic but rather that yeah. you are trying to be real hoping that there will be some sort of connection and then yeah it's it's um disheartening when that becomes like everything else like a viable marketing mechanism yeah thinking about like authenticity and fakeness and realness an online like avatar of yourself or like a version of yourself and how that like a self-concept of this sort of like ego of like who you are as a person or something is like such an illusion to begin with. Yeah. And I think I was intentionally like playing with that, which is why it's funny when like people, especially like people at my school or whatever, who like found out about the work I was making were like, she's fake. Like, being like, <laughs> that, like you're completely like, yeah, but... I think I understand what you're saying. There is a you can you can a hundred percent be playing with the idea of self or avatar or identity or any of these things, and while mucking around in that stuff and also kind of poking or experimenting with it, that that doesn't necessarily mean that there can't still be very real, very earnest kind of intentions behind parts of it. Like these, Absolutely. you can hold those two things in, in your brain at the same time. You can experiment with something and still speak truths, right? Yeah. Like that's, isn't that like what art, I mean, it's kind of like what fiction is, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I should really be thinking more about fiction as a thing. What a lack of imagination to really yeah. think that you have a static mm -hmm. sense of authenticity that there is a real you that you can be and that there's no other 
possibilities or like fragmentary other selves that can come out or that you like can explore beyond the limits of what you sort of like who you are told you are by other people well and by performing to that by performing to that expectation and especially with an online mediated personality where you kind of get subsumed by i guess your brand for a lack of a better term you become fucking you have to become concretized in this avatar because if you indicate any ability to sort of grow or learn or change as a person you're seen as inauthentic because you don't stay true to your like whatever's when the funny thing is i think we all know socially and through relationships and family and anything else that you literally have to be nebulous in in the way that you operate as a human being in order to keep kind of growing and being um useful is not the right word because it sounds instrumentalizing but to be to be functional and helpful to the people around you you have to be able to like imagine yourself as fluid and and not in a way that you're being disingenuous or dishonest but rather in the sense that you that you can like evolve as a person <laughs> like that's like a that's an yeah. admirable trait I well, think. also like so i'm really into this um like philosopher spiritual teacher kind of person jiddu krishnamurti um who wrote this book called the first and last freedom i'll have to check it out i don't know it i highly recommend it it was published in the 50s the like crux of his thing is that like truth is a pathless land and like Every single moment is different than the moment before it. And if you are too attached to any type of dogma or like identification, you're inherently like keeping yourself stuck in a, in a like existing kind of like rigid way of thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Truth comes from like being with what is. Thinking about that in terms of like a personal brand or something too, like if you're staying in this sort of like static thing that you've created, it, it's based on the past and may not be like in touch with what's present and true. Yeah. And I feel like there are ways to, you can, you can be a human being who remains kind of elastic in that sense while maintaining kind of a continued integrity of sort of like in, an ethical or a moral compass about like specific politics as long as you're nuanced in those can kind of still grow and stuff like that like you can you can believe in equality in these kinds of things and still be an evolving changing person and not feel like it's yeah it's not just uh sort of existential nihilism rather it's it's kind of like it's presentness yeah it's kind of coming from like a buddhist like perspective of like this sounds super like woo woo, like, I don't know, but I feel like if you're like actually present and honest with like what, what is in any given moment, not just within your own kind of like ego sense of self, but actually like on a larger kind of like everything is connected kind of way. Yeah. Whatever your politics or what quote unquote politics will always be on point yeah. because they'll yeah. be. No, that's a good point. I don't know if that, that's the best way of saying it. I feel like those words could get warp to mean something i'm not really trying to say but i just don't really know how to articulate it no i think it makes sense if you are aware and present and sort of understanding what's going on and that this moment is different than all other moments then naturally by being kind of dialed in then you will understand this kind of interconnectedness which kind of by default will make you kind of have progressive good politics if you're yeah self-inquisitive yeah well so what's coming up in 2019 for you that mm-hmm. people should keep an eye out for or anything that you're excited about that people can't even see um in terms of things coming up i so that feature that i was the production designer for american tender is um has been submitted to a bunch of other festivals like film cool. festivals and so they're depending on if it's accepted um, there may be future screenings of that in different cities. So if you're interested, I will be posting about it if anything like that comes up. But that's kind of like to be determined. Yeah. And then same with like a lot of the other stuff I've done art direction and like set design for this year is still in post-production. So like, I worked on a 
TV pilot this summer. Oh, cool. It's like going to be a web series, but I can't really talk about what that is, but that'll be out at some point. Nice. And then something I worked on, I literally just helped out for one day of the shoot, but there'll be an episode of something on the Discovery Channel that I worked on. What? That's cool. That I will <laughs> promote when it's appropriate. So these things will be, they will be trickling out. Yeah. Yeah. But- it's kind of like a delayed gratification thing when I work on something like that because it's like yeah. you do all the work on set and then like as a production designer, your your job ends on the day of shooting and then it goes into post-production and you're like, okay, like yeah. <laughs> I'm hands off for the rest of this thing. So yeah, stuff will be coming out and if your listeners want to follow me on social media for updates. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'll put a link to those in there. May waver on all platforms <laughs> i like the i like that though because it's sort of the the indeterminacy of those kinds of projects that involve a lot of people working together to kind of like build the thing mm-hmm. um it's it's a more realistic way of the way that things in the real world work instead of just like i have a solo exhibition at this place coming up and you can mm-hmm. check that out it's just a little more like yes i'm involved with all of these people so it will come out when it does and then i will let people yeah. know and it's just yeah no i like it also i i like to, to tack this on to the end one thing that i have really gravitated toward in the film industry and working on these projects where it's like i do a lot of individual work in the pre-production process of like choosing the right props and materials for the set and kind of like storyboarding and all that is more me kind of making decisions with the director. Um, Mm -hmm. But then when you're on set, it's such a like collaborative, like truly, truly collaborative experience. And everyone there is doing a really specific job and you need every single one of those people. And there's a kind of like, surrender to the project yeah yeah. like you it's less about like my own ego of like well this is my thing and like what however it's received will reflect entirely on me versus (laughs) like i'm a part of this something greater than the sum of its parts yeah and when it comes out we're all going to be equally like really invested in how it is perceived in the world that's been a cool phase to be moving into in my professional life. Yeah. Working on stuff like that. So stay tuned for more of that. I'm going to be directing something this winter too. Nice. Which is like kind of a secret still, but yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much. This was a pleasure to get to talk to you. I'm glad to finally have you on here. Um, and to everybody out there listening, thanks as always for joining and we will catch you next week. Bye. This is my-